series called the Beatitudes and it's been incredible it's been incredible till I actually had to teach tonight and I don't know I don't know how incredible it is in Matthew 5 when the crowds came to Jesus he went up to the mountain sat down and began to teach and that's why it's called Jesus's sermon on the mount but it's more than that it's his kingdom manifesto because he explains what the kingdom is how it works, and what it should look like. And the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount are known as the Beatitudes. And you'll notice in verse 1 and following, you'll see the word blessed used nine times. This is because the word means happiness or happy. You see, each one tells us how to enjoy his goodness. And they set forth the character of the kingdom and the character of kingdom men and women in the distinctive way they should live. And this is not just for some super saints living in the kingdom. It's for every born-again believer. I want you to look at somebody and say, it's for you. This is for us. And it calls upon us to come to a new standard of living in our lifestyles. It's Jesus saying to us, look, this is the way you must live if you are to know true happiness. And if you want to be blessed in my kingdom. So we could call the Beatitudes antibiotics from God's pharmacy that can aid life transformation. Isn't it nice that in our world today our happiness is not dependent on having even our most basic physical needs met? It's all spiritual. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus pronounced these blessings on people with a kingdom mindset who align with his word, those who consciously and unapologetically align their lives under the rule of God. So let's look at it real quick. Matthew 5, 1 through 5 is where what we've already covered. And I'm going to break that down, then we'll get into verse 6. And seeing the multitude, he went up into the mountain, into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to be in spiritual poverty. To be conscious of one's continual dependence on God. Here it is. If we'll live every day, that I'm just a beggar that needs God in my life every day. Verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for thou sh they shall be comforted. You know what that means? It means to be saddened by the things that sadden God. God grieves over the sin of this world. So we must not laugh at or excuse that which causes God to mourn. Sin and its consequences surround us so that we are tempted to become numb. Look, culture wants us to accept what their ideas are. We don't do that. If it hurts the heart of God and it hurts his word, it hurts us. We've got to pray that God would give us the emotions of his heart 
so that we can experience the comfort of God to encourage and strengthen us. Daily repentance is necessary. Verse 5, bless are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some translations render the meek as the humble. It's important to understand that meekness doesn't mean weakness. Boy, you need to write that down. Consider, for example, the process of breaking a horse. The idea is not to break the horse of its strength or speed. Rather, the goal is to break the horse of its self-will. And as long as you remain independent and wild, you will never maximize God's intention for you. To be meek is to learn to submit to the will of God. And when included in Scripture, the word meek refers to being gentle before God, poor in spirit, the truly humble, and is the only one who has to look up at everybody else. To be meek is to love your enemies and bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That's what, that's what humbleness is. Then we get to verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Another translation says this, they shall be satisfied. I'm glad today that Jesus Christ gave us a way to find satisfaction in this life. So tonight, I know this is going to shock you. I'm going to teach, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I want to help you tonight because I know this helped me. Because a lot of us don't know how to define righteousness. And I'm going to do my very best to show you what righteousness is not and what righteousness is. Dear Heavenly Father, I need your anointing tonight. Help me to preach your word to these great people. God, let your anointing go forth. Let the word find good ground and produce. Bless those watching online, God, and those that are here. In Jesus' name we pray. Give the Lord one more hand clap of praise. And you may be seated. I know you've heard the statement before that truth is stranger than fiction. And so often that is the case. Some things happen that are just outlandish, bizarre, and unexpected, but they're real. In 1979, a Burger King in the Midwest was broken into and burglarized. Burglarized. And though that in of itself isn't odd, the name of the criminal who broke into the Burger King makes the story interesting. He was 18-year-old Ron McDonald. How's that for a headline? Ronald McDonald breaks into Burger King. A year later, a year later in 1980, another burglar, burglary took place in a completely different city, Detroit, Michigan. And the burglar was apprehended. His name was Jimmy Carter. Not the president at that time, but a man named Jimmy Carter. Now that is strange, but what makes it over-the-top odd is the name of the arresting officer was Richard Nixon. So when Richard Nixon arrests Jimmy Carter, that's strange. Here's another one. In Orlando, Florida, in a courthouse, a jury of 12 was on their way to the courtroom to finish out the hearing of a case. However, the elevator got stuck as they were on their way to the courtroom. They were trapped in this elevator for 20 minutes. Eventually, they get out and make their way to the courtroom. But guess who the jury would hear a case against? 
the Otis Elevator Company. And I'm sure that experience impacted their decision. It's strange. And then there was an ad in a Marshfield, Wisconsin newspaper that ran this way. For sale, parachute, used once, never opened. Not going to be buying that parachute. So with that as an introduction, we are looking at, it, at what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Possibly the best known sermon Jesus ever preached. Everybody knows about the Sermon on the Mount. However, it's arguably the last understood, the least understood sermon Jesus ever preached because it's unique and it's different. The ancient Greeks described their gods as makarios, the Greek word used for blessed, which is because they lounged around Mount Olympus enjoying all the privileges of divine power. The word was used, also used to describe the rich living free from the usual cares and worries of life. In the Greek view, you would be happy or blessed if you had possessions, a marriage partner, bachelorhood, intellectual understanding, fame, children, death, when it, with its release from life's problems or initiation into a secret society. And here we have Jesus saying the best route to happiness is to be poor, grieving, hungry, and persecu persecuted. It was countercultural for Jesus to say these things. And the people who heard it had never heard anything like it before. Jesus, are you serious? That's not what blessings are, and that's not what happiness is. They were so taken back that when he was done, and, and you read these words, Matthew 7, 28 through 29, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It was different. The Jewish scribes had their traditions and opinions, but Jesus spoke with the authority of the voice of God. Now, you've got to get this. You've got to understand this to understand the Beatitudes. It's key because let me remind us that the overall theme of Matthew is to present Christ as king. So repeatedly through the first part of Matthew and the remainder, he emphasizes some, some element of the kingliness of Christ, whether it's a kingly line in his genealogy, whether it's the worship of the Magi, who the official kingmakers, whether it's the fulfilling of the kingly prophecies of the Old Testament, whether it's the dominion that he has over Satan, which shows himself, himself to be a greater ruler than even Satan. Whatever it is, Matthew's perspective is to present Christ as king. Can I tell somebody? He's not just a hero. He is king. And when he gets to chapter 5, he presents the king's words, the kingdom's declaration, and the truths about this king's kingdom. Let me simplify it. This is the king telling his followers how they should live in order to know happiness. And let me be real tonight. If we don't follow the declaration of the king, we will really never be happy on this journey of following him. And isn't it wonderful that God is offering us that? Listen, there's a lot of people that think that, that God's just this mad God that doesn't want us to be happy. God's not some cosmic killjoy. God is not finding his greatest joy in reigning on your parade. God wants you to be blessed, happy, and satisfied. But he wants you to be blessed, happy, and satisfied according to his word and not external blessings that you have around you. And he gives us here the principles on how to do that. 
But once again, it calls for distinctive living. If we live like this, Jesus promises that that will be different. Now, let me say that again because you need to write that down. You actually have to make a change in your life to inherit this, this, this blessing and this happiness. And in many ways, I guess we'd have to say that Christians today have lost their distinctiveness. We have been shaped and molded by the world's music, its morals, its idea of marriage, its concept of divorce. It's morality, it's liberation movements, it's materialism, it's approach to food, it's, a, it's approach to alcohol, it's approach to atmosphere, it's approach to entertainment, it's approach to sports, it's approach to all kinds of things. And we get pushed into that. And it's very easy for us to lose our distinctiveness. And what Jesus is really saying here is if we are a part of the kingdom, we should live differently than the world tells us to live we should live according to the word of the king jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away can i go a step further it's the word even above tradition mark 7 and 13 thus making void the word of god by your tradition we can make void the word of god by traditions I don't want to do that it's the word of the king above any other thing in my life the word of king the word of the king is even more important than my wife's opinion about my life it's the word of the king and this is where we find his guideline on how to live and I must hunger and thirst for how he wants me to live what does his word say about separation that's what I want to know I want to know what does it say? What does it tell me? What does the word say about modesty? What does the word say about idolatry? You know what idolatry is? It's when we put things before him. Moderation is key to anything we do. What does his word say about marriage and divorce and sobriety and atmosphere? Hey, the places you hang out matters and it will impact you whether you know it or not. Can I say it again? It may not be a sin to go there, but if the atmosphere pulls you down, then it's best to draw a line and say, I can't go there because I want to live for the king. Listen, stop asking, is it rated PG-13 or R? Why don't you ask yourself, can the king sit here and watch this with me? And the list goes on and on and on and on. Apostle Paul would go on to write this in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means complete and total surrender, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be, y'all reading it? Conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Just like your spirit needs to be born again, your mind needs to be renewed daily. Can I say that again? You can't expect a renewed mind that you got on Sunday to carry you through Saturday. You've got to decide in your mind to believe what you've heard and apply the word of the king to your life every day of your life. You've got to renew your mind. You've got to recreate your mind by seeking him, his kingdom, and his righteousness daily. 
and included in that renewing of your mind is your decision to repent of dead works. Paul said, I die daily. Let me ask, let me, let me ask a question, and I'm trying to help us. How's our daily altar where we go and deal with the dead works in our life that we know shouldn't be a part of us that's trying to cling to us? And we've got to engage in works of obedience and, and live like Christ every day of our life. Jesus said in Luke 9 and 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a tough decision. But you've got to make that decision daily to follow him, to deny yourself. And if we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have to renew our minds by denying a, ourselves and daily destroying the pattern of the world look if you're measuring your moral standards by the world you're measuring measuring it to the wrong pattern you got to destroy that pattern what does the bible say what is that what what is what is the pattern of the world here it is i want you to write this down i want you to keep this and take it with you anything and everything that contradicts jesus christ that's the pattern of the world. Anything that we do and anything that we want and anything that we think, if it contradicts Christ, then we must deny ourselves of it. Any attitude that we have that is contrary to Christ's attitude, anything we put on, anything we consume, anything we see, hear, speak, and even in our personality trait that's not in agreement with God's will for us, we have to deny ourselves every day of those things. He wants us to rest and relax, but we can't allow our conscience to be seared to what displeases him. Paul said, I die daily because as long as we are in the flesh, we will have desires and thoughts and maybe even habits that need to be denied every day. Are you ready? Your desires are never going to go away. Preacher, you, man, I, I repent it. Wake up in the morning. In an ad, you'll see an ad near the trigger a desire that you thought you conquered. Why is that? Here it is. Because God has designed us with appetites and desires. That didn't come from Satan. God built us this way. He put the seek down in us. That's why he says seek and you will find. It has been woven into our DNA. And our appetites are so powerful that if we develop them for the wrong things, it will override our God-given destiny and take control of our life. And here it is. It's your choice. You ready for righteousness? It's my choice. What table? At what table am I going to sit at daily? Am I going to go feed my flesh all day long? Or am I going to find a table, get the word of God out and pray and feed my spirit? Adam and Eve ate the wrong item on the menu. Oh, Satan made them do it. No. They ate the wrong item on the menu because they chose to do so. The enemy can't take your choice. He can put temptation in front of you, but he can't make you make that decision to partake of that temptation. It's a choice. We need more self-control. That is a fruit of the Spirit. Sure, the enemy came after their appetite, but they should have taken authority over him instead of engaging in conversation with him. The longer you allow that temptation to simmer in your mind, the greater chance it has of tripping you up. 
you've got to deal with it every day of your life and you've got to refocus your appetite. It's our decision. We choose what we satisfy our appetites with. And be careful because once a desire is created, it will never go away and it will never be fully satisfied. I read a story that in the 14th century in the land we now call Belgium, there was a duke by the, a duke by the name of Renaud III. He was overweight. Now it seems that Renaud had a violent quarrel with his younger brother Edward, and Edward became so angry he led a successful revolt against him. But Edward did not kill his brother. Instead, he built a room around Renaud in the castle, and he promised his brother he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. This would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a door of near standard size. And none of them, the door wasn't locked and the windows weren't barred. The problem was Renaud's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother. And each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, Renaud grew fatter and fatter and fatter. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. Renaud stayed in that room for 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. By then, his health was so ruined that he died within a year. And the article says he was a prisoner of his own appetite. The enemy wants you to become a prisoner of your own appetite. That's why he has you standing at the refrigerator of life. Because you know you're hungry and thirsty, but you don't know what for. And you stand, you're looking at everything in the refrigerator. You got some leftovers in there. You got some things in the past that you allowed to stay around. And you look and say, man, I'm just starving. Look, some of us here and watching are treating our lives like the menu at Cheesecake Factory. Have you ever been to Cheesecake Factory? It's 88 pages long. But nothing looks satisfying. It's 88 pages and nothing looks satisfying. Because deep down, we know the things of this world will never suffice. But we're looking at them. We're looking at them and we're watching. And we're like, man, I've got an appetite. I've gotten a desire. And we're not, we're not filling that appetite and that desire with the right things. And before we know it, we're partaking of the wrong things. 1 John chapter 2 says this. It warns that you can't get satisfied in the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, what's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And none of that stuff abides forever. It's just when. Sure, the pleasures of sin will last for a season, but they will never bring fulfillment or satisfaction. But we haven't been to the king's table in a while. So our desires and appetites are all over the place. And that's why many are empty. They're trying to fill an eternal void with a temporary solution. It's eternal. God built you with this seat down in you, but you're trying to fill it with all the wrong things. And Solomon warned us. He warned us. He was the king of Israel. He was the wisest man to ever live. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He, he was also rich and successful. However, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's almost depressing to read. It's a 12-chapter journey of, of Solomon telling us he tried everything in the refrigerator. 
He said, I tried everything in the refrigerator. He tried knowledge and education. If I can get certificates on the wall, I'll be satisfied. And watch what he says in Ecclesiastes 1 and 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. Can you put that up there, please? For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. At the end of Ecclesiastes, he also, he also says this, chapter 12, verse 12. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Then he goes to the next chapter and he's pursuing a career. Maybe that will satisfy. Knowledge didn't do it. Education didn't do it. Let me get me a career. I'll set some goals and I'll achieve some things in my career. Maybe lavish vacations will satisfy. And he writes this in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 through 11. I deny myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. Do you, do you see that? A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Then he goes to chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's meaningless. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all things. I had toiled far into the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. He said, everything I've worked for, I'm just leaving it for someone else to enjoy. That's what he said. He said, he said you know what? So that's not going to work. He said, maybe I'll invest my money. So Solomon bought art and the best of everything during that time. 1 Kings 10 and 14 tells us that Solomon received, Solomon received 666 talents of gold each year as a base income. Do you know what that is in today's market, what his base income would have been? $1.5 a year. My boy was rolling. Anything he wanted to buy, so he invests. Watch this, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 11. He's getting everything out the refrigerator. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so does those who consume them. You know what he's saying? You got to buy it, but then you got to insure it. You got to put cameras on it. You got to repaint it. You got to. He said, you could go get it, but it's going to consume you to try to keep up with it. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? He said, what good is it to look? You, you know, it's called buyer's remorse. You go buy that vehicle and you look at it, and the next day you're like, man, it don't look as good as it did when it was on the lot. Then he has, he says, that's not working, so he has mass popularity. He had servants and all the court all around him, and he was never alone, and everyone looked to his needs, but he still felt lonely. Ecclesiastes 4 and 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toll, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. He said, I've got all these people around me, but I'm so lonely. I don't have anybody I can trust. So those of you that are trying to find satisfaction in relationships, stop. Follow God and allow him to put the right relationships in your life. And look, it doesn't stop there. Then my boy gets into wine, women, and song. First Kings 11 and 3 says he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. 
That's bad. I don't know if you know that. That's not good. It's not. Solomon said, you know what? None of that, none of that satisfied me either. But now I want to skip to the end of the book and the end of our life at some point. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Now all has been heard. He said, you heard everything I tried. He said, I got everything out of the refrigerator I can get. He said, I, I tried to be successful. I tried to get knowledge. He said, I, I had wine, women, and song. He said, I had money. I had investments. I had people waiting on me. He said, now that you, you've heard all that, hear the conclusion of that, the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Solomon figured it all out at the end. Do what the word tells you to do and follow the king. Solomon said the only thing that's going to work in your life is if you do what the word tells you to do. And it reminds me of a quote by Augustine. That quote should be on the screen. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And that is why I'm here tonight, to tell someone that our desires were meant for us to seek him and be satisfied at his table. The 42nd Psalm said, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God, when I go and stand before him. The writer said in the same way that deer search for life-sustaining refreshment, the worshiper pants for God who sustains life. This is deep calling unto deep. This is the created desiring the creator. Apostle Paul said the desire of my heart is to know him because we were built for his table and nothing else will ever satisfy. Psalms 107 and 9, I love it. He says he satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. Psalms 34 and 10, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So maybe if I'm lacking, it's because I'm really not seeking. And what does it say in Psalms 23 and 1? I shall not want. What? Want? My cup is running over. That's, I don't need anything. I've got the good shepherd. That's all I need. And then you go to Jeremiah 34 and verse 14. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Isn't that great? My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Proverbs 21 and 1 tells us, Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. So let me ask you a question. If all this is true, if we're blessed by how we seek him, then why do we not pursue righteousness? Why? One reason is because we are full of the wrong things. You can write that down. If I'm not pursuing him anymore or pursuing him like I used to, it's because I'm full of the wrong things. I don't want to grow a church at the river. I'll just shock some of you. I don't. I want to grow people. And it breaks my heart to see someone who I know God has tremendous things in store for but they're filling up everywhere else that they can't even enjoy the goodness of God. And now nothing, they're so full of everything else, nothing about his kingdom satisfies them. It doesn't matter how good of a message is preached. They can't enjoy the filet mignon of his word because they're eating pork rinds, Slim Jims, and Reese cups all week long. 
stopping by the grocery store on the way to the house of God, and they're filling up on all this junk food, and then the word of God is brought, the bread of life, and we no longer long to hear the word of God. Look, we can watch a two-hour movie, but we're not, we not sitting through a 45-minute message. And I, I get it. Preachers shouldn't be long with it. I, I think you should say what you got to say in 35 minutes, but I, and I've repented after every Sunday, I promise. But what I love about Matthew 5 is that Jesus knows that everybody's not going to pursue him in this way. So he goes up on a mountain. When the multitude came to him, he walked away from the multitude, and he goes up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, being his disciples, saying. So this is worded very carefully. Don't miss this. He sees the crowd, and it's as if he leaves the crowd or tries to. And with his disciples, he takes them to a place where he sits down and he teaches them. In other words, and it's important to note this, this is a message not preached to the crowds at large, but to those who want to follow him closely. Not everybody is going to live out Matthew 5. They will live miserable. They'll never be satisfied. They'll never find fulfillment. But it's true. Not everybody in the crowd is going to make the journey. But there are those. You've got to imagine. Jesus is outside speaking. And there may be thousands of people scattered around. He has no microphone. And he might be talking loudly. But the people that are really going to hear him are his disciples. Because they set the closest to him. Not everybody in the crowd is going to grasp what Jesus is saying. And he knows. He knows most of these are following him just for the miracles, but they're not committed to the kingdom. This is for those who are willing to get close enough to the king. Now watch this. It says he went up on the mountain and he sat down. I wish I had a chair up here. How unique would it be for me to be up here sitting down while you stood up the whole sermon? That's what he did. Everyone was standing. Jesus Christ was sitting. But you got to understand. you got to understand during this time when a rabbi wanted to speak with authority, the rabbi always sat down. If the rabbi was having casual and formal conversation, he, he would stand up or walk with his disciples and teach them. But if the rabbi wanted them to comprehend, he would make them stand up and he would sit down. And when he sat down, that showed that, hey, I'm getting ready to be authoritative and give you something meaningful. This was serious, and he goes on to tell them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He's telling them about pouring out. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Some translations render the humble as the meek. He's emptying them of all self-sufficiency and self-assurance and pride. It is the very first thing that must happen in the life of anybody who ever enters the kingdom. Nobody has ever entered the kingdom entered God's kingdom on the basis of pride. Poverty of spirit is the only way to get into the kingdom of God. The door to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is low. And the only people who get through that door are those who are crawling toward him. And this is tough. Jesus is saying, you got to start here. Happiness is for the humble. And until we pour, until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious to us. Until we comprehend how doomed we are, we, we can't understand how wondrous his love is to redeem us. Until we see our poverty, we cannot understand his riches. And so out of the cork carcass comes the honey. 
It's in our deadness that we come alive. Proverbs 16 and 5 says, Cursed are the proud. God gives grace to the humble. You enter God's kingdom with a sense of desperation. And if you want to know happiness as you live in his kingdom, you keep the same sense of helplessness and desperation. I've watched people. I've watched people come into the kingdom desperate. And as soon as God restored them and filled them, all of a sudden they were boastful with pride. They didn't come to the front to worship. They didn't come to altar calls when it was done. They, they got, I got it together now. I got it figured out. Look at my clothes. Look how I'm dressed. Look how cleaned up I am. We should never stop admitting that we're weak and that we're nothing because that's not the end. It's the beginning of our journey into following the king of kings. Everyday beggars knocking on the door of the king saying, I will not make it today if you don't show up in my life. I can't go another day. I'm not satisfied with anything else. I need you in my life. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money. You read that? Come buy and eat. How do you buy something with no money? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You know what he's saying here? Is it doesn't cost you anything but humility to get what you need from the king. You don't have to come in rich. You ain't got to have the right shoes on. You, you don't have to have an expensive outfit. What he's saying is you come, you come to me with humility. If you're thirsty, I'm going to make sure that you drink. If you're hungry, I'm going to make sure that you eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Psalms 34 and 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The second reason that people do not pursue righteousness. Here it is. Is because some of you. Some of you had someone else serve you God the wrong way. You had a bad chef, and now you don't think that the Lord can taste good anymore. Can I tell you, I love sushi. But I've been to places where the chef didn't make it right, and it didn't taste right. But that's not going to keep me from eating sushi. And there are some of you that they, they gave God to you the wrong way, and it's put a bad taste in your mouth. And now you don't pursue righteousness because of the way some chef cooked up God into. Why don't you bypass the chef and go straight to the book? Because when you go to the original, when you go to the word, oh, taste and see that the Lord is uh, good. Don't stop pursuing because you had some. Person. That weren't right in their spirit. And they were manipulating the word for their own personal agenda. And they, they, they served him to you, and you, you partook of it, and you was like, man, this, this is decent. And come to find out that their hearts wasn't in it, and they didn't really want to elevate the kingdom of God. They want to elevate their own kingdom. And now you can't even find God because you, you have that taste of what they put in your mouth. Get rid of that tonight. Go back. I can tell you it's the greatest life you'll ever live. There is nothing like living for God. There is nothing like reading the word of God for what it is. There is nothing like spending time in his presence. Look, you mad at God because someone didn't know how to serve him the right way. Paul said, I wish you would know what I know. 
Ephesians 3, 18 through 19, I pray that you may have power together without all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul said, I wish you can experience the love like I've experienced it. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. So what is righteousness? This question this week messed me up. I thought I would finish this sermon in about five hours. It took me about 14. It messed me up. What is righteousness? I'm going to give you two meanings, and I'm hurrying. Righteousness is right standing with God. You need to write that down. It's right standing with God. Somebody who hungers and thirsts after righteousness first seeks the gospel, being born again of water and of spirit. We can't live this apart from the Holy Spirit. And the same spirit that filled the temple lives inside of us, according to 1 Corinthians 6 and 19. God loves to fill empty vessels. So for me to be made right with God, I've got to enter his kingdom the way that he instructed me to enter his kingdom. So we are made right with God by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. We put on Christ. When we go down in that name, we put on Jesus Christ. It's also understanding the price paid for us to be right with God. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Can I say that again? I, I want to say it because it goes along with what I said Sunday. Since we have now been justified by what? His blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? When I put on Jesus Christ... The wrath of God has sufficed. And when judgment steps in, mercy says, no, I've covered them already. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having, having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life, Jesus Christ? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And now let me add this. When I came to Jesus Christ, I hungered and thirst for his righteousness. And now that I know him, I still hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Linsky, the great commentator, says, this hunger and this thirst increases in the very act of being satisfied. Paul says in Philippians 1 and 9, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more and more. So when you come into the kingdom, you're not done. No matter how much you love, you ought to love more. No matter how much you pray, you got to continue to pray. No matter how much you obey, you ought to obey more. No matter how much you think like Christ, you got to continue to pursue to think like Christ more. This should be the consuming desire, never-ending. Blessed are they which do continually hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know what that means? I get to church early. I go to the prayer room. I serve. I, I get as close to the front as I can get. I come to the front here and worship an altar call because I need him today. I'm hungry and thirsty after righteousness. I read my Bible and I pray every day. I win souls and try to disciple people every day I try. I live a separated lifestyle and have a relationship with Jesus Christ and his word every day. And listen to this. If we want to have revival at the river and continual revival, it's not going to come with people just being filled. It's going to come with us continuing to hunger and thirst after the things of God. And are you ready? You backslide one step 
at a time. Man, I, I was excited about the kingdom and some things slipped in my life and some patterns of the world slipped in. And before you knew it, one step back, another step back. You see, the Jews would have thought, musicians, you can come. You see, the Jews would have thought that he would have said, blessed are they who possess righteousness. And they would have all gone, oh, that's us. We possess righteousness. We all possess it. And he literally blasted them and said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, the people who think they've got it will never be blessed. But the people who know that they don't have it are the people that continually to pursue after it. I haven't arrived yet. I haven't had all that I can get yet. I'm not fully satisfied yet. Isn't that great? Just when you think you're righteous, you're really not. Because you're the most desperate you've ever been to know him more. He blesses those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that very blessing is the thought that you can't ever be fulfilled. I'm never going to be satisfied. Someone said this is a thirst no earthly stream can satisfy. A hunger that, most, that must feed on Christ or die. I call it divine discontentment. He says blessed. And he says they shall be what? Filled or satisfied. God wants to make us happy and satisfied. Satisfied with what? Well, what are we hungering for? Hunger, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, they should be satisfied. Isn't this a fabulous paradox? You're satisfied, but you're never really satisfied. Isn't that great? You come on Sunday and you get full and satisfied, but on Monday you're like, man, I, I need some more of the Holy Ghost today. You hunger and thirst and you're satisfied, but you're never really satisfied. So it begins with salvation and it continues with sanctification. And you can never be satisfied with a part of it. You can only be satisfied with all of it. So watch this. Righteousness is being right with God. And righteousness is right living on earth. You can't live your way. Listen, go out and try it. Go out and live how you want to live. You'll always end up in a pig pen. Proverbs 14 and 12, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. Listen, I see which way the world is going. But can I tell you, the river's not going that way. We're going with the authority of God's word. If the word says it, it's wrong. If it says it's right, it's right, the end. That's where we're going. And we will be persecuted for righteousness sake. And I can tell you this, if you make that decision, never walk out on him. We're like Motel 6, we'll leave the light on for you. We have to live right on earth by pursuing the lifestyle that God intends. Proverbs 12 and 28. In the way of righteousness there is life along the path is immorality. Be ye holy for I am holy. Our relationship with Christ must become the center of our entire life. And everything else stems from that. Jesus gives to that woman at the well. And he says to her, he says, her life is in shambles. And he says, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. And the woman at the well had come to the place, and she says, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to drink. And she said, I, I want to get something that fills up the emptiness that I have in my life. And I filled it with all kinds of things, but I have to keep going back 
again and again and again because it really doesn't satisfy. I've been married again and again and again and it really doesn't satisfy. And I'm living with somebody now and it really doesn't satisfy. And I've been going to church. My people worship in the mountains, but it really doesn't satisfy. Give me this water that you talk about that I thirst not. She's talking about the misery of thirst. She's talking about there's more. And I can't keep living like this. I need to have this thirst quenched. Give me this water that I thirst not. Neither come hither to drink. And whatever Jesus releases into her spirit, she drops those water pots. And she runs in to tell everybody about this Jesus. You know what she was saying when she dropped those water pots? She was breaking the cycles of her life that has kept her from the water that Jesus came to offer her. And there's some of us that have to break the cycles in order to partake of the water. There's some of us that have to understand the cycles have to stop. Because the water is good. more I want to bring a small vessel to him the Bible says if you open your mouth he'll fill it I want to bring him as much as possible and say fill me up I haven't had enough and that's the kind of expectation that following Jesus should create in us we should never be satisfied with just getting by and I'll close with this as we stand hear me I need you to hear me closely as I close this out a hungry man does not want food in a new suit. You heard that right. A hungry man does not want food in a new suit. A thirsty man does not want food in a new pair of shoes. You know what they want? Food and drink. They couldn't care less about the suit and the shoes. Just give him the food and the water. Psalms 119 and 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times are you a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness oh Isaiah 26 and 9 tells us in the night I search for you in the morning I earnestly seek you for only when you come to judge the earth will people learn what is right David said I thirst for you God early in the morning the wise virgins had their all before the bridegroom ever showed up they were thirsty nothing else mattered so they prepared early and you know what there are some people who are going to thirst too late. And they're going to be like the rich man in Luke 16 and 24. Oh, send someone who can dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in the flame, in this flame. And they'll thirst when there's no longer a remedy to fill them. Oh, we're going to thirst one day. We just got to decide, are we hungry and thirsty for the things of God now? Esau, your birthright is too valuable to sell it for a little bit of stew. Esau, you got to change your appetite. And I can tell you right now, the problem, I read this and I repented and was convicted. The problem within the church is that we don't hunger and thirst for his presence. We don't linger 
We don't wake up every day saying, man, if I can just get in his word, if I can get me a word, I'm looking forward to it today. I'm looking forward to prayer today. I'm looking forward to it. I'm consumed with knowing more of him. Listen, I don't scare people. It's not the way I preach. I'm not sovereign. But I refuse. I refuse to one day die lost. And then all of a sudden become thirsty. When I have every opportunity right now to pursue him like I've never pursued him before. That water that he talks about. The bread of life. Pursuing him and being right with him and living the way he wants me to live on this earth. It starts with humility. Can I ask you a question without being offensive? When was the last time you knelt before him? Preacher, I can't kneel and not knocking you for that. When was the last time you sat before him in a posture of humility? You sat before him. He said, I'm just longing for you today. never figure it all out. You can read it, Genesis to Revelation. Never figure it all out. It's a pursuit daily to know more about Him. That's what it is. It's a pursuit. We're going down to the river.